Some years ago, there was an emphasis among Southern Baptists called Empowering Kingdom Growth. Any, any of y'all ever heard of that? I don't know if it was ever discussed here. But it was a book, and it was a theme, and it was talked about a lot. And I remember leaning over to my wife the first time I heard that, and, uh, and I said to her, I said, you know, if, if Southern Baptists ever begin to really study the kingdom of God, it will blow everything apart. One of the unintended, not in our case, but one of the unintended consequences of studying the kingdom of God is that he just might show up. Studying the kingdom of God is disruptive. Experiencing the kingdom of God is divisive. And it's a dangerous topic. It's like a new government study that was done recently that found that women live longer who carry a little extra weight. They live longer than men who mention it. And I feel that way about the kingdom of God, that if we understand properly what is meant and what is being told to us about the kingdom of God, it can be a dangerous and disruptive and divisive topic. We have seen already in previous weeks that the kingdom of God was the central and the core message that Jesus preached and that he taught. And I don't know how I missed it in the earlier part of my walk with God and my growth as a young Christian, but no one ever sat with me and said, what I just told you. And as I came to understand the gospel, I understood it strictly in terms of one piece of the good news. And that great piece of the good news is what we have typically taught and preached and sung about most of the time. And that is that we have been forgiven for our sins and that our God is a loving Father who does pursue us and does not stop until he has brought us to himself. And that is true. But Jesus came preaching, repent for the good news or the gospel of the kingdom is at hand. And he specifically said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he called it the gospel. It was good news. He preached the gospel, the kingdom of God. And so there's some aspect to this that you and I need to understand is awesome. It's good. And it's what we need to hear. We have seen that the kingdom of God, by definition, is not a reference to a people. The church is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God produces the church. The kingdom of God creates the church. The kingdom of God sustains the church. But the church is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is not a people. The kingdom of God is not a place, a geographical location. What we saw in the study when we did this in recent weeks is that the kingdom of God, as the Bible talks about it, is actually the exercise of the power or the authority of a king. It is him expressing himself. It is the ruling presence of the king. And so when Jesus came announcing that the kingdom of God was at hand, he was saying God is here and God is about to rule and he's going to express his rule. He is the king. He is on his throne. 
And so Jesus announced this. But he did more than announce it. Here's the dangerous part. He not only announced that the kingdom was here, he demonstrated it. And that's where sometimes we as Baptists can be a little bit uncomfortable. We have a few more weeks till we get to that point. We started with the Old Testament, the very first reference to the rule or the kingship of God, an attribute of the king, we discovered in the book of Exodus. And what we saw was closely associated with his divine name. That as the people of God were in bondage in Egypt, that he comes to Moses in a burning bush and he reveals the divine name, which is that I am who I am, I am the ever-present one, I am here, and I have showed up. And I'm paraphrasing. And, and in effect, what, what happens is the ruling power of God is expressed because at that point he enters human history, and we saw last week how he collides with the gods of Egypt, the demonic powers that were behind those gods that were being worshipped, that, that controlled Egypt, and through their control of Egypt, subjugated and kept the people of God in bondage. That as God enters human history and collides with the powers that oppress the people of God, his purpose is to set them free, to bring his people to himself that they might serve him. That pattern is repeated over and over again in the scripture. We're going to see it tonight in the kingdom of David and Solomon. We could see it on a smaller scale in the lives of individuals in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And some of us, properly understanding what God has done in our life, would see our entire salvation experience as God entering into our lives, colliding with the powers of darkness that held us in the kingdom of darkness, who brought us into his kingdom, and he has set us free. And so tonight, I want us to explore Israel's kings in the kingdom of God. What we're doing is laying a foundation for the message that Jesus preached. When Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, he wasn't just dropping something in that the people had no background or understanding of. There was a great expectation that they carried of a kingdom that was coming. And we should carry that same expectation. And... And so what we're doing is laying a foundation. It begins in Exodus, and Exodus sets the table for the entire rest of Scripture and helps us understand that the kingdom of God is not just a theme among themes in Scripture, but because it was the core message Jesus preached, it is the primary way for understanding the biblical text. In the, seventh, in the 15th, in the 16th, 17th centuries, the Great Reformation took place, and some of the most basic biblical truths were brought to the surface again. Truth like truths that relate to the, that we are justified by faith, not by works. That God makes us right to himself without any contribution on our part. That he has provided everything necessary to make me forgiven, clean in his sight, and accepted in his sight through his son, Jesus Christ. And so that great message was preached. Justification by faith. And those same Bible teachers and scholars of that era began focusing on the covenants of the Old Testament. And there are at least seven major covenants described, and there are other smaller covenants that are described where there is essentially an agreement between God and man. And some of them, covenant theologians, would tell you that the entire Scripture should be understood in light of those covenants. Listen to me carefully. 
every single covenant that you can pull out of the text and show me is a result of the ruling power and presence of God. Every covenant is simply an expression of the kingdom of God. Every one of them. And, um, and when I started preparing for this tonight, I had a whole section on that, and I thought, we don't have time for that. I ain't got no time for that. I want to get to the New Testament and what Jesus said about the kingdom, but we do need to lay this foundation. So I have a series of statements tonight that I want to take us through that I believe will help us understand this next phase of God's teaching us about the kingdom of God. First of all, in Exodus, God demonstrated his rule over Egypt. We saw that last week. And so the people of God know at least that he is more powerful than the most powerful nation on earth. And what you need to understand is that the kingdom of God, you cannot separate the kingdom of God. If I, if again, the synonym for kingdom of God is the ruling power of God. And then the more and more as I think about it, reflect on it, I would just say it's the ruling presence of God. It's an attribute of the king. It is his right to rule. It is his ability to rule. It is his expressing his rule actively in our world. And so when we read about Exodus, it's not just a grand old story in the Old Testament. It is a description for you and me of what happens when God comes among his people. It is a picture of what he wants to accomplish in our lives individually and as a group. It's a picture of God ultimately through setting up the sanctuary and the Old Testament sacrificial system of God making it loud and clear that his primary objective was so that he could come and live among his people. And all this stuff that had to be described and set up and taught were lessons for the people of God to understand what's, what's required and what's involved in having a relationship with a king. And so in Exodus, we see him demonstrating his rule that way. But then in Joshua and Judges, God demonstrated his rule over the nations. Now remember, God had made promises to Moses about what was going to happen. He made these initial promises go all the way back to Abraham in Genesis 12. And uh, it's one of those covenants that we are not talking about. And, and he is promising that he's going to take him from the land that he's in to a land that he's going to show him. And it's a promised land. And later, as Moses hears the promises, it's a land flowing with milk and honey. More significantly, it's what God delivered them from Egypt for was this ultimate objective. They would land in this land where God rules, where he expresses his rule. In Psalm 47, verses 2, and 2 through 4, it describes this expanding understanding. This is a psalm from the sons of Korah and who are intimately related as descendants of people that we read about in Exodus. Anyway, it says, for the Lord most high is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth, not just part of the earth, over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us. And see, that's what they were expecting, that all of these nations in Canaan were going to be subdued and driven out so that they could receive the inheritance that was promised to them. But here's an issue, and this is a problem. The experience of living under God's rule in the promised land had not yet happened. Those of you who are Bible scholars, you'll remember what happened at the end of Joshua's life. Was the land completely conquered? 
Was it? No. In Judges, were those who worshipped false gods, were they completely conquered and subdued? No. Now, God was expressing his rule through Joshua, through the Judges. There would be these charismatic leaders who would come and people would follow them and they would serve God for a period of time and then after victory, after success, after a period of peace, they would forget that God was the one who was ruling, God was the one that was making it happen and so they would fall back and they would be dominated again. So the promise had not yet been fulfilled. Do you see that? Something else had to happen. What God told Moses was going to happen, what God told Abraham was going to happen had not happened yet. And so this God who is a king is trying to teach his people about his rulership. Listen to what he said to Joshua in Joshua 1, verses 3 through 4. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. As I said to Moses, from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites and to the great sea toward the going down of the sun shall be your territory. That hadn't happened yet. Didn't happen under Joshua didn't happen under any of the judges. And so it, when you come to the end of the book of Judges, the nations were not yet completely subdued. There was a promise yet to be fulfilled. Now, during Moses' lifetime, God anticipated, God explained that there would be a day when Israel would have a king. And I don't have time to delve into the particulars of this and why Samuel was so disappointed when the people wanted a king but in Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 to 20, you can, I think it's in your notes. If not, you can just jot it down. Deuteronomy 17, God spoke to Moses. And here were the criteria of what God said this king should do or not do. Listen, he was to be one that God chose, that God selected. He was not to be a foreigner. He was not to acquire horses, in other words, military might. He was not to acquire many wives. Busted. <laughs> Big time. He was not to acquire large amounts of silver or gold. He was to write the words of the law on a scroll and follow them all the days of his life. And this is interesting. He was not to think of himself as better than his brothers. Not to lift himself up above, above his brethren. That's an interesting kind of a king, isn't it? And you know, as you read through the rest of the Old Testament, you can evaluate how close they were to what God wanted. By reading that list and they you know what they all fall short they all fall short but here's the plan God's plan was to grant the experience of his rule through an anointed adopted king now he had been expressing his rule through various deliverances in judges smaller versions of the exodus but he, they had not yet experienced the full rulership of God in any way and so they 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 were waiting for something more and so here's God's plan and we see it in Psalm 2 this psalm is called a messianic psalm because it points to the Christ it points to the anointed one in the future and if you have your Bibles I encourage you to turn to Psalm 2 and we're just going to we're just going to read through it I'm going to make some comments as we read through it because this really does lay out God's plan of what is what is about to come under the rule of David and Solomon. Psalm 2. It's a great psalm. Verse 1. 
Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. This is now not just a confrontation between two kingdoms. It's God versus everybody. All the kingdoms of the earth. And they're rising up against God, who is the supreme king. Look at verse 4. How does God respond to this massing of force? He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. (laughs) I like that. You should too. When it seems that we are, and it's going to get worse and worse, when it seems that you and I are absolutely insignificant in the United States, when it seems that we have no influence in our world, when it seems like darkness is winning and everything is pushing the gospel into a corner, he who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. So the Lord's power is overwhelming. He laughs as he rebukes and terrifies the nations, and they are easily destroyed. Now listen to verse 6. Why does he do this? Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. Now suddenly we have someone else besides God who is in the picture. And that's why we spoke of, in, um, in verse 2, it says, against the Lord and against his anointed. Here's someone that he has set as a ruler. He is anointed one. And as we see by the time you read the end of this psalm, he is called a son. And so in, he is an anointed, adopted king. There would be, in fact, two kings, one in heaven and one on earth. The Lord reigning through the king that he had ordained. The term Messiah, or anointed one, was the Israelite name for their king. And David was the first to be called an anointed one in verse 2. And that's why we call it the Messianic Psalm. It lays down the calling and authority of the king of Israel. It is a letter of appointment. It is a description of what God is doing. Now it goes on in verse 7. He says, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Now, have you heard that spoken to someone else besides King David? Jesus. Jesus. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. And so, The representative of the king can act on behalf of the king. He's going to be the vehicle by which God expresses his rule and his authority. With this anointing, he can rule the nations and even crush them into submission. That's our king. Verse 10, now therefore be wise, O kings, be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. When his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Now under the rule of David and Solomon. God would no longer be simply speaking through someone like Moses. And then demonstrating his rule. Now he's actually going to take someone. 
a human being, and he's going to express his presence through their kingship, through their ruling. I want to make several statements about that. First, God announced his intention to establish an eternal kingdom through David. Now, you might have missed that in your daily Bible reading, but in 2 Samuel chapter 7, David has already experienced some measure of success, subduing his enemies. He's experiencing a measure of peace. And in the course of that, he says, well, I've defeated my enemies, and I live in a nice house, but there's not a house for God. And that was a, that was a very contemporary kingly thing to do. If, uh, if you were successful and your God gave you success, then you were supposed to build a house that honored that God. And so he opens up in 2 Samuel 7, that's what he chooses to do. And he and, he and Nathan the prophet have a conversation about that. And he basically asks Nathan, is this going to be okay? And Nathan says, sure. But that night, Nathan has a dream. And he comes back and speaks to David. And you know what he says, David? You know what God said to you, David? He says, you want to build a house for me? I don't need a house. I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to build a house for you. Let me tell you what I'm going to do. And you'll have to read it for yourself. Time doesn't allow us to read all of it. Let me just read part of it, 2 Samuel 7, verses 12 and 13. When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So God has a plan, and, and he's going to act through an earthly, anointed, adopted king and David is starting this new lineage, this new dynasty of rulers who are going to represent the ultimate king. Second thought, God demonstrated his rule by defeating all enemies and ushering in a period of peace. You have something similar to what you had in Exodus. There are all these enemies in Israel. David subdues them. In fact, as you continue reading through 2 Samuel 8, that's almost all that you read about in 2 Samuel 8. After it came to pass... Uh, David attacked the Philistines and subdued them. And I mean, and then he defeated Moab. And then he defeated Hadadezer. And David took from him 1,000 chariots. And I mean, every, every, everything through here. When the Syrians of Damascus came to help Hadadezer, king of Zobah, David killed 22,000 of the Syrians. And it just goes on and on. He's whooping up on him. What's happening? God is expressing his rule through an anointed, adopted king. Listen to verses 14 and 15 of 2 Samuel 8. And the Lord preserved David wherever he went. So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered judgment and justice to all his people. And so through David, the people are benefiting from the expression of the presence of God. Through David, the presence of God is showing up in the kingdom in the form of justice and peace. Third thought, under Solomon, the kingdom of God was experienced as shalom or peace by the people of God. And the kingdom, as God intended to bring it to Israel, the, what the promised land experience was to be all about, is finally shows up when Solomon rules. He's not a man of war, he's a man of peace. And God demonstrates that. In 1 Kings chapter 4, 
there's kind of a summary statement, verses 24 and 25. It says, and he had peace on every side all around him, talking about Solomon. And that word peace there is shalom. I'll say more about that in a moment. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree. And it just goes on and describes how good it is when God rules. Now, here's what I want you to see. Under Solomon, under his rule, the people of God experience, and I've got a short list here I want you to hear. They experience kingdom celebration and growth. Kingdom celebration and growth. Listen to verses 20 and 21 of 1 Kings 4. Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand by the sea in multitude, eating and drinking and rejoicing. It was a party. I mean a party. If you go and read the end of Revelation, what it describes heaven as in terms of a banquet when the people of God gather before him, it is a party. It's a celebration. So Solomon reigned over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines. As far as the border of Egypt, they brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Kingdom celebration and growth. The people of Israel were like the sands on the seashore. Another evidence of the presence of God is kingdom abundance. Kingdom abundance. Listen to verses 22 to 24. Now Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour, 60 cores of meal, 10 fatted oxen, 20 oxen from the pastures, and 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fatted fowl. For he had dominion over all the region on this side of the river, from Tepsah even to Gaza, namely over all the kings on this side of the river, and he had peace on every side, all of them. It was like he was feeding the United Nations every day. All these people were coming to him, paying him tribute. One of my favorite passages is when the Queen of Sheba shows up. Oh, this is good. Let me just read it to you. Just listen. Now, when the Queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, she came to test him with hard questions. She came to Jerusalem with a very great retinue, and it describes it. And when she came to Solomon, she spoke with him about all that was in her heart. This is 1 Kings 10. So Solomon answered her all her questions. There was nothing so difficult for the king that he could not explain it to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon and the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his servants, the service of his waiters and their apparel, his cupbearers and his entryway by which he went up to the house of the Lord, there was no more spirit in her. You know what that's saying? She swooned. Oh, Solomon. <laughs> this guy is good. She could not handle what she was seeing and hearing in the presence of God. Not Solomon. Now, she may not have known it was God, but this was all an expression of the presence of God. What does it look like when he's in charge? When he's calling all the decisions, when he's making things happen, what does it look like in the kingdom? Well, there's kingdom abundance. And then there's kingdom peace. And I read those verses already. Um, verses 25, 28, each man 
brought his articles of silver and gold, garments, armor, spices, horses, and mules at a set rate every year, year by year. Um, and it describes all the things that, that were brought. And um, I skipped verses 24 and 25. I've got the wrong reference on there. How about that? Well, I'm still in 1 Kings 10. No wonder I can't find it. Woo! I just like the Queen of Sheba. Okay. <laughs> That's Samuel. Here we go. And Judah and Israel dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree. Now, it's already said that he has peace on every side. Shalom. One thing you need to know about Shalom in the Old Testament, you know how the, the gospel writers always open up their later letters the same way. What do they say? Grace and peace to you. And, and that word peace is a Greek version of this Hebrew word shalom. And shalom is not just the absence of conflict. Shalom, um, as they understood it, meant wholeness. Life as God meant it to be lived. Shalom. Life as God intended it to be. Shalom. And so as you read through here, it's kind of describing that. Judah and Israel, all Judah and Israel, everybody, dwelt safely, each man under his vine and his fig tree. I mean, they were prosperous. They were doing well. Their crops always were perfect, always did well. No disease, no problems, no handicaps. Their wives just had like 20 children each. Whatever their picture was of prosperity, they, they were fertile on every level. It was, it was a blessing from God. And so there was kingdom peace or kingdom shalom. And it was a sheer presence of God that was causing all of that to take place. The last one I want you to hear is kingdom life. Kingdom life. And we see that in verses 29 to 31. 1 Kings 4. God gave Solomon wisdom and exceedingly great understanding and largeness of heart like the sand on the seashore. So not only were the people of God being multiplied, like the sands on the seashore. We already read that. His heart was expanded like the sands on the seashore. Thus Solomon's wisdom excelled the wisdom of all the men of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt, for he was wiser than all men, and it lists them, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005, and he spoke of trees. He also spoke of animals, of birds, of creeping things, of fish, and Men of all nations, from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom, came to hear the wisdom of Solomon. There was a whole lifestyle associated with the presence of God. God gave Solomon wisdom and great insight. He saw things. He saw all of life from, from the perspective of God. And because of that, he saw the truth. He saw the truth because he saw it from God's point of view. I can't imagine that. The text draws our, our um, attention to this um, comparison of the sand of the seashore. The people are like that. His mind is like that. His heart is like that. His inner man is like that. Huge, expansive. 
It's not possible to see the world, creation, mankind, and life through the eyes of the kingdom and be small-minded. Solomon could see it. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs. When you read the Proverbs, we don't have all 3,000, but when you read the Proverbs, you're struck by the, the imminent practicality of every one of them. And how when God rules, he has a way and an approach and an interest in every aspect of your life. His songs numbered 105, including the Song of Solomon, which we're not going to talk about. I mean, he has incredibly practical, intimate observations. And as much as people try to make it only about Jesus and the church, he's describing a romantic relationship, you know, in terms that aren't familiar to you and me. I mean, when you, when you look at a woman, you say, I'm not even going to do it. Your teeth are like a mare's teeth. You know, I'd kind of be afraid for her to nibble on me. Uh, be rough. Woo! He was also a biologist, a zoologist. He was an ornithologist, a herpetologist. He was an ichthologist. He knew all about animals. He knew all about creatures. There was no aspect of creation that he didn't comprehend. And so the wholeness of life, shalom, arrives under the rule of this king, but he is merely a vehicle, a channel for the presence of God. And that is why, from that point forward, the people of God, of Israel, always looked back to the days of David and Solomon. Always looked back to that time when they knew God was present, and they knew God was ruling, and they knew he was in charge and in control. Some of you that lived through the Jesus people era of the 1970s when God was winning people, when people were being saved in large numbers, when youth groups were running 100 and 150, even in small churches, when, when I got saved, when many of you got saved, we, we know what it's like when God is present and God is at work. Some of you can remember back to the early 1950s when in Arkansas we baptized more people in 1950 than we ever have before or since. And we know what it's like when you have a, a little revival and you're disappointed because only 40 people got saved. We know what it's like when God shows up and he manifests his presence. And this marked the people of God for the rest of their generations. As we look next week at the prophets, we will see how the prophets reach back to David and Solomon and say, you think that was good, wait till you see what's coming. Wait till you see what's coming. That was just a picture. That was just a snapshot of what God has in mind. And it helps you understand what the people thought was going to happen when Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is here. What can we expect when God rules based on our survey of David and Solomon? First, the king announces his rule, then he demonstrates it. That's his pattern. That's his pattern, and we're going to see this especially in the ministry of Jesus. He announces the kingdom of God, and then he demonstrates it. He shows it. He, he, he helps us understand what life looks like when God is ruling over the circumstance. Secondly, the king always brings liberty to his people. Always brings liberty to his people from slavery in the exodus, from wandering in the desert, into the promised land, from foreign oppression, before David, all of that went away. The king always brings liberty to his people. 
Thirdly, the king establishes the rule of justice. Everything that's not right is put right. If he does that in a kingdom, by the way, what do you think he wants to do in your heart? Knowing God as your king means living under his wise and righteous administration, just as the people under David and Solomon did, rather than under the oppressive rule of a liar and a murderer. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. He sets the prisoner free. He watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow. So when God is present, what do you think he's going to do with us? What do you think he's going to lead us to do next? And then finally, the king restores life as he intended it to be experienced. He restores life as he intended it to be experienced. Our family life, our community life, our international relations, prosperity, poetry, philosophy of life, wonders of nature, you name it, God puts it right. One of the passages we'll look at next week, one of my favorites is in Isaiah 11. And it describes the future reign of God and and what it's like in his kingdom. And it likens his kingdom to a holy mountain. And he says on that holy mountain, the lions won't eat the lambs. The lions lie down with the lambs. A little baby can play near a snake's hole and put his hand down in it. He won't be bitten. And he, and he summarizes or describes the peaceable kingdom as it shows up in artwork. He summarizes it in Isaiah 11 this way. He said, there'll be no harm on my holy mountain. When God rules, the world looks very different than the world looks like tonight. Now, I don't know what you need God to do in your life. And I, I mentioned it in one of my, my thoughts that came to mind this morning in praying. But one of the mistakes you and I can make when we understand that he is a king is that we think that when I pray, what I'm asking him to do is show up and do something and become part of my, my story, my plan, my movie. God, show up and become part of my movie. When the truth is, what he is doing when he comes as king is suddenly we get a picture of what he is up to and we get to be a part of his story and what he wants to do. And Jesus called that an abundant life. David and Solomon would say it's shalom. It's what you were made for. It's why you're here tonight and you're breathing. Is you and I get to be a part of his kingdom. Now, what does he say to you and me? He said, seek his kingdom first. Seek it first. If you're not part of the kingdom of God, the Bible says you're into the kingdom of darkness. It means you literally are being ruled by Satan and his demons. That's what it means. One of the ways Paul describes salvation in Colossians 1, 13, 14, he says that he has delivered us or conveyed us from the kingdom of darkness and placed us in the kingdom of his son. And even though I'm still here in this world as broken as it is, when I trusted Jesus Christ in the fall of 1978, he took my life and he moved me from one kingdom into another. My address didn't change, but my whole eternal destiny changed. 
And tonight, if you have never trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, He is calling you. And as we sang tonight, He is pursuing you to come to Him. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Yes. To wash your sins away. He bore every one of your sins on the cross. And when you trust Christ, you will be forgiven. But he died on the cross for so much more than just to remove the barrier between you and God. He died on the cross so you could be in a relationship with God, who is a king. And if you have never trusted him, in just a moment when we stand and sing, we'll have pastors standing at the end of each aisle. These men would love to share with you how a person enters the kingdom of God. It's not hard. They'll share scriptures with you, and you can read it for yourself. But the Bible says that when you're serious about that, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Shall be saved. And then, brothers and sisters, I don't know how God has spoken to you tonight, but the altar's open. And if you have a burden for yourself or someone who's dear to you, I invite you to come and pray down front. I invite you to come and talk with one of our pastors if you need someone to pray with you. But as God has spoken to your heart, how will you respond to him? Our Father and our God, we thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. For this incredible truth that we want so desperately to become a reality in our daily life. Father, I pray as a result of our are listening to you, your spirit, and your word, that increasingly we would be known as a people who walk with a king. That we would be known as a people who, when we talk to you and we call on your name, things happen. And the world changes for the better. Father, tonight I pray for that person who's hurting and desperately needs to know that you are in charge. They need you, Almighty God, to step in and to show your power in their heart, in their mind, and their circumstances. So, Lord, tonight we stand gathered together as the people of God, and we, we say clearly, without any hesitation, you are the king. You are Almighty God, and you rule over all the earth, over all the nations, and you rule over all the forces of the enemy. Because you are the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies. You, you are the one who rules and is Lord over everything that would try to be Lord over us. And tonight as your people, we cry out to you and we ask that you would come. Would you enter this place and show us something of your presence. As your people, we want to say yes and be responsive and sensitive to you as you guide us in these moments. In Jesus' name I pray.